So we're continuing our series in 1 Kings and the, the sermon that Philip has prepared from 1 Kings chapter 7. How about I pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it instructs us. Help me to uh, read it and, and share it clearly and faithfully and help us all to be shaped by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in our studies in the life of Solomon, from these chapters in 1 Kings, we have noted the many good gifts that God showered and bestowed upon the king. These gifts were, of course, gifts of grace from God to Solomon. And if we noted them, we would come up with a list like this. Family, a godly heritage, co-workers and supporters, marriage, riches, peace on all sides, and bucket loads of riches. We should not take these gifts of God to Solomon for granted. He earned none of them. They are all gifts of a loving and kind God to him. Good gifts. Gifts that showed Solomon how dearly he was loved by God and gifts that were designed to draw Solomon's heart to the Lord. Now, the same truth applies to us, doesn't it? Throughout all of life, we share in many of the good gifts of God. We may not have the riches that Solomon did, or the opportunity to rule as Solomon did, but we still know the reality of the gifts he has given us. And these gifts that he has given to us are manifold. Family, marriage, health, wealth, certainly comparatively speaking, position and work. These are all his gifts and none of them are evil in and of themselves, but good. But the good gifts of God given to us can also become snares. To be clear, God the giver is good and gives from good motives and he displays his generosity and kindness to us through these gifts. But there's a problem, not with God, but with us. We misuse these gifts. We abuse these gifts. We take something good like marriage and we can turn it into something that brings harm to another. We can take skills God has given us, productive work to help others, and we can instead use it to crush others and promote ourselves. We can take what God gives us in terms of wealth and turn it into an idol that we worship and serve, something that draws us away from God and not toward him. And how true was all this in the life of Solomon? Good gifts became snares. The pursuit of creative things eventually drew his heart away from the one he was called to serve first of all. Now even though God had promised Solomon both riches and honour so that no other king would compare with you all your days, even yet these things became that snare. And perhaps this becomes clearer in no other place as much as in the chapter before us in relation to the building of Solomon's palace. And so in the text before us, three matters come to light about Solomon's palace. First, we note that the text tells us 
in verse 1, something about the priorities the king put in place. Now, you'll notice that the numbers of verses relating to Solomon's house are relatively small in comparison with the larger sections, focusing on the temple in chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 7. There are 12 verses in relation to the palace and 76 in relation to the temple. So the house of the greatest king on earth gets a minor mention compared to the house of the God of all the earth. But we see this in the context of verse 1 which says, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. Which comes hot on the heels of the last verse which said, Solomon finished the temple in all its parts and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. So in total, Solomon spent 20 years in a building project. One was longer, one was shorter. But the question is, whose house did he begin to do first? Solomon didn't build his own house first. He built the temple first. And we could note that at this point, that Solomon at this time was walking with the Lord and honouring him. And so in terms of actions, which count the most, more than years spent, he insisted on building God's house first. And this was commendable. We know that he didn't always do that. And later on, when he stopped putting the Lord first in terms of priority, of course he began to put other things first, like his wives and their gods. But here, as I said, this was commendable. It may have taken him seven years to build the temple, but it took him 13 years to build his own palace. In a day and age when social housing is in such short supply and homelessness is rife, evaluating a 13-year building project just for yourself doesn't look that good, does it? And while many commentators here launch straight into the evils of the luxury and the excess of this palace that Solomon indulged in, That's not my intention here. As we've heard, God has promised to make Solomon greater than any king on earth. And this promise came to him in a day when God manifested his glory through the earthly glory of Israel and big temples, victory in battle, bumper crops, prosperous kings and large palaces where the language of blessing that would be a witness to the nations around them of the God they served. These blessings were never intended as a condoning of greed and overindulgence, but were intended to point to life under God who blesses his, his people abundantly. Some might say here, but as you look at the details of Solomon's palace, it's clear that it was bigger than the temple. Is this an indication that Solomon's priorities were wrong? Well, not necessarily. Solomon's house was also a place where justice was administered and where many guests would come from around the world. And so it was built this way to testify to God's greatness and blessing. And I think the main point of all that we are told is to underline the warning that comes from what became of him. He started out well and had the right priorities, but yet failed to follow through with what was begun 
perhaps even allowed these good gifts of God to become a snare. Now God most certainly warned his people of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 14, which ends with this warning that when they take up residence in the land God was giving them and they become settled and prosperous, that they should not forget the Lord who redeemed them. See, soft pleasures can very well harden the heart. Prosperity is one thing people want, but it can so easily become a trap for the unwary. Priorities matter and they, and they become so important. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus reinforced this aspect, telling us that the God whom we love and serve feeds the birds and clothes the lilies of the field. And so then we not, ought not be anxious about our needs, but, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll take care of everything else. Now, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he doesn't mean as the first out of many, as if we could have a whole host of priorities and God just happens to be the first one of them. No, Jesus means first as in first and only, the only one. The first priority in that sense, which we see in Solomon, who puts God's house at honour before his own, setting a pattern and challenging us to do similarly. Without wanting to lay it on too thick, let's remember that this applies at least in three ways. Certainly you're giving to God, challenging whether you give him the first fruits of your hard-earned or maybe the small change. It applies also to time, whether you devote that to God above all others and being with his people, is that of vital importance? It also applies to your service of, of, of others, remembering that our love for God is measured by no other test than the way you love others. These questions challenge us toward gospel-centred thinking and gospel-centred priorities and gospel-centred living. These are things we should not easily push aside, but sit with them and think over them and respond to God's overwhelming and abundant grace. Secondly, the text tells us of the buildings the king put in place. In verses 2 to 6 and 8 to 12, you might be under the impression that Solomon's palace was just one big building, but it seems as if it was composed of a number of buildings. And the text tells us that these buildings and the materials out of which they were constructed. The description of the palace we are given shows us that there were six main parts to it. And we can imagine these six parts as two blocks, each block divided into three. In the rectangular block furthest away from the temple was a complex made up of three halls. One was the house of the forest of Lebanon, which is described in verses 2 to 5, about 45 metres by 25 metres. It was called a forest for all the cedar beams in it, with the walls covered in cedar wood panelling, with opposing windows to let in light. 
In the middle was the hall of pillars which held the entrance to the palace complex, as we see in verse 6. This was a reception area for visitors. Then to the east of that was Solomon's hall of the throne, where he sat to execute justice, as we see in verse 7. All three of these halls had a public use and were not the private quarters of the king. Sandwiched in between the temple complex and the public buildings was the palace complex. This once again was a rectangle about the size of the first hall mentioned and in it were three main parts. From left to right, there was the palace of Pharaoh's daughter, then Solomon's palace, and then a court, as we see in verses 8 to 9. Special mention is made in 9 to 12 of the cut stone used. The blocks were about 4 to 5 metres and were very expensive materials to build with. These stones were quarried, cut with saws, transported and manoeuvred into place all through the palace, reminding us that God takes us as raw material and works on us to fit us together into his house, a dwelling place for his spirit, one that might reflect something of his splendour and glory and of the transforming power of the gospel of his grace. Thirdly, the text tells us of the throne the king put in place. Now all through this series, Philip has stopped at the places Solomon points us to King Jesus who was to come. And this is another one here. You'll note in verse 7 it describes that part of Solomon's palace called the Hall of the Throne the very place where Solomon would sit on a daily basis and distribute justice for God's people. It is significant that the place where alongside the temple of the God of all the earth is, is this place where the king would sit to administer wise justice for his people. So you have this picture, God's chosen king being in God's chosen place on his throne rendering true justice and there you have the heart of many prophecies concerning the Messiah for example Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So as Solomon sat on his throne with all this wisdom, it was not just so that his name and so God's name would be glorified, but also that we might see the end goal of God's true son sitting on his throne as the judge of all the earth. Now we shouldn't forget that this was a theme that the apostles were not ashamed to teach. 
Paul, in Acts chapter 17, in his sermon to the people of Athens, made it clear that God has given us clear warning of this judgment by rising Jesus from the dead. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, said something similar, reminding those who heard him in the house of Cornelius that Jesus is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And the rest of the New Testament agrees. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The writer to the Hebrews said it was destined for all mankind to die and then to face judgment. Years ago, Philip read a letter written to the Herald Sun psychologist who answered questions from readers. The reader wrote something to the effect of whether his fear of being judged by God was rational, and if so, should he do anything about it? The psychologist wrote back something to the effect of, no, such fears were irrational because it it was only the God of the Old Testament who was interested in judging, while the God of the New Testament was a God of love and mercy to all. How sad is that? But sadder still is the fact that most people believe this to be the truth. Think about it. Whenever any public figure dies, the world thinks that heaven is their automatic destination. Apparently, there is no need for salvation anymore. Automatic heaven is the norm. Now, there are many reasons for this Uh, ranging from a growing ignorance of the scriptures, a hatred of the doctrine of hell, and a denial of the fact that we're all sinners. And while the majority of our population want justice to be given where it is due on earth, they're not so keen about facing it when they die. But there's nothing... uh, But there's nothing sure is there. There's no escaping the justice of God. But sadly, many people adopt the Kerry Packer view. Back in 1990, while playing polo, Packer had a heart attack and was dead for seven minutes. Revived by paramedics, he lived on to say this, I've been to the other side and let me tell you, there's nothing there, there's no one waiting there for you, There's no one to judge you, so you can just do what you like. If only. There in Solomon's palace is a seat for dispensing uh, justice. Just as in the palace of heaven, there is a throne room on which Jesus sits and reigns as king. One day we'll all stand before him to give an account of every word and every deed. How can you know that he will show you favour on that day. Well, friends, this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? The good news of salvation. The good news of one who was condemned in your place, that you might not be condemned. One who paid your debt, that your bankruptcy before God might be cancelled out. One who suffered the wrath of God in all its fullness for you so that you might be spared from facing any of it. So we have the situation, unthinkable in our courts, 
where the judge not only finds you and I, the accused, guilty as charge, but also pays the fine, takes the rap, does the time out of sheer and irresistible grace, freely bestowed upon those who come to Jesus for salvation. Received by an action so simple as asking, and yet so profound as to involve heart, mind and will, submitting our whole being to him as Saviour and as Lord. Last week, when we looked at the temple, Philip said, uh, and then that one of the ways uh, we learn about each other is through visiting their home. We learned quite a lot about the living God in relation to his house. And now we learn something about the king in relation to his house. Kings, of course, live in palaces, so that shouldn't surprise us. And palaces are beautifully appointed too. And that shouldn't surprise us. We all know something of the opulence associated with the royal family and would be incredibly surprised if they chose to live in an average three-bedroom house in the suburbs of London. But what should surprise even more then is that the King of Kings came to live among us. He had nowhere to lay his head. There was no royal palace hall for Mary and her baby. There was no well-appointed and luxurious beds and lounges. Neither were there attendants to do his bidding. There was no throne for him to sit upon. He came as the lowest of the low. He came in such a way so that no one could say, well, he didn't come for me. Or, He came only for those with riches and power. Not so. Jesus himself said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And perhaps this also reminds us of the challenge we've already noted about priorities in life and the call from him to us to seek first the kingdom of God as we remember that we have received a salvation we did not deserve through him who, although he was rich, became poor for our sakes, that by his poverty we might become rich. And yes, we can take that one step further too, can't we? Just as Solomon, his palace and its associated halls, so too Jesus made this promise before he ascended into heaven. Words that we reflect upon often. John 14 Verses 1 and 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. If it took 13 years to build Solomon's palace, Imagine the work done on the one Jesus is preparing for his own after so, so long. And while Solomon's palace one day crumbled and bit the dust, this home will never ever see decay or need rebuilding. For it will be as Solomon's father said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Won't that be great to see? But even better to know that if you belong to Jesus by faith, then his palace will not just be his, but also be yours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness shown to us. Just as it was shown to Solomon, you give many things beyond what we deserve. Help us to receive them with thanksgiving, but more than that, to give glory to you and to recognise you as the one who gives so freely. We pray that we might have gospel-centred priorities recognising that what Jesus did at the cross, how he died and rose again for us, shapes what we do. Help us to seek first your kingdom, to make straight our paths, to live wise lives, not ensnared by the things around us, even the good things that we ought to receive with thanksgiving. Lord, as we go out into the rest of our week, We pray that you would be a light, that you would be our right pathways, that you would work in our hearts by your spirit to live wisely. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, the judge, will come again as he promised to put things right. We pray that even though we we do not see justice done in the meantime, we look forward to those things being right. We thank you too that you show grace to us and there's a mercy there too that we don't receive what we deserve for our sin, but that he uh, takes it on our behalf by grace to be accepted only through faith. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.